Open at large, I'm Leonard Lopate. Each year, the American Library Association, the ALA, compiles a list of the top 10 most challenged texts, and it tracks the trends of moral panics and attacks on libraries and library offerings. Joining us now to discuss the situation is Deborah Colville Stone, the director of the ALA's Office for Intellectual Freedom. Welcome to our show. Thank you, Leonard. I'm glad to be here this morning. You say that uh, during your over 20 years with the organization, you've witnessed a steady hum of censorship. And although the reasons have shifted over time, you've never seen the number of challenges we've seen in the past couple of years? Uh, that's correct. And actually, I'd say the past couple of months. Um, we generally see a few hundred challenges every year. Um, and you know, we will get one or two a week. In the summer, we'll get none at all. Schools are out of session. People aren't paying attention at that point. Um, but for the last few months, we've gotten multiple challenges reported to our office on a daily basis. Um, I've never seen challenges come in on a daily basis or in such high numbers. There's even been a few days like for example, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, we actually had 12 reports filed in our office um, all, all at once, uh, different challenges in different locations. I've just never really witnessed anything like this in the past. Um, and it's, as I said, it's been over 20 years that I've worked in the Office for Intellectual Freedom where we've been tracking these trends for so many years. And you estimate that there may be as many as Five, over 5,000 challenges each year, uh, a matter of what's called silent censorship? Well, what we find is that when we do are able to look at the reports made to our office and the media reports we collect, we hear about maybe 8 to 12% of the challenges that we can record. And an example is that um, in the state of Missouri, a few years ago, uh, a group of journalism students uh, used book challenges as the subject of their Freedom of Information Act project. So they sent FOIA requests to every school district in the state um, and gathered that information. And when we were able to compare our data to theirs, we had heard about only 8% of the challenges that they had able were able to find out about through the Freedom of Information Act. Um, and so we are aware that very few of the challenges are actually recorded or reported in any way to our office or through media um, or come to the attention of the public through school board meetings or library board meetings. Um, often it's a principal deciding on their own to walk to the library and pull a book off the shelf despite the fact that there might be a written policy for the reconsideration of library materials. Um, similarly, uh, a library worker uh, may decide to put a book in a drawer and never put it back on the shelf. And, and again, the book is lost, uh, no longer accessible to its intended audience or to the public who may want to view it. Um, and so uh, because of this, we, we believe that Censorship is pretty pervasive, particularly in schools, but also in public libraries where there's a fear of controversy or a willingness to comply with the demand of an individual or a group asking for a book to be removed from the library. 
The Marshall University libraries, which conduct research on banned books in the United States, have defined a banned book as one that has been removed from a library in a classroom, etc., and challenged books as those that have been requested to be removed from a library classroom, etc., by a censor. So between the two, um, I, I looked at the list. The, the, the top ten reasons that books were challenged and banned include not surprisingly, sexual content, um, offensive language, that they're unsuited to an age group. We're going down in uh, percentages here. Religious viewpoint, LBTQIA plus content, violence, racism, drugs, alcohol and smoking, anti-family content, and political <laughs> viewpoints. That's, uh, that covers a lot of stuff, including some that I would think uh, might be okay for kids. Well, that is, in fact, the issue. You know, when they talk about unsuitable for age group, um, that covers a host of complaints that um, an individual might not or a group might not want to admit to. Um, we find we've actually had to shift uh, our data points for our reporting because so many complaints were based on unsuited for age group. But when you dug into the complaint, you found out that it was a parent objecting to LGBTQIA themed content. Uh, for example, like George. Uh, yeah, and George is an example. But uh, another example is the picture book Entangle Makes Three. It, I don't know if you recall it, but it's the true story of two male penguins at the Central Park Zoo who got together to hatch an egg and raise a chick together. Um, and uh, it's won many awards. Um, it's an absolutely true story. And yet it was has been continually challenged as, quote, unsuited for age group, but unquote. For what uh, reason? That sounds that sounds like a very nice story. It is, and it's absolutely suited for kindergartners, first graders, uh, a read aloud during story time. Um, it's absolutely charming. There is no explicit content in any way. It's age and developmentally appropriate, uh, but unsuited for age group really translates into, it talks about a same-sex couple, and we don't want our kids Ooh. knowing about some homosexuality. Uh, and Even so, if it's penguins. Even with penguins. And, and so any endorsement, any idea that that homosexuality, uh, being gay, being queer, is something other than uh, uh, an illness or an abnormal state um, can often bring challenges. Uh, and, you know, um, and so, you know, we've actually, you know, Marshall pulls a lot of its information from the reporting we do. And so we've now adjusted it. We can know, we no longer uh, provide unsuited for age group as a reason for challenging books. We ask people to drill down and to more closely identify their reasons for challenging the book. Um, I will tell you that what we've found over the years in collecting data, and our database goes back to 1990, um, is that, um, that we, very seldom see challenges or bans of books dealing with material for adults, adult books written for adult audiences. I think that is something that we've come to agree on, and at least in U.S. society, that it's your business what you read if you're over the age of 17 or so. Um, 
but where we find the disputes arising are books available to young people. And that can be a kindergartner or it can be a 17-year-old. Um, and the topics that have been most challenged in the last few years, uh, and actually topic, um, have been books dealing with gender identity, sexual identity, um, or, or in some cases, books dealing with comprehensive sex education, changing bodies, how babies are made, sexual behavior, how one navigates one's, one's life as a sexual being as one matures. Um, these are the books that are being most frequently challenged these days. Um, and, and so you see books like George, which is actually been, I should note, um, the book is now Melissa. The author, Alex Gino, has asked everyone to you know, recognize that the book has been retitled to reflect the character who is a transgender girl um, and uses that character's name. Um, so, but Melissa has been challenged throughout the country, even though it's a middle grade book really intended for perhaps third through sixth grade, seventh grade readers, a chapter book, age appropriate, developmentally appropriate, but it has a transgender character. And as a result, it's been the most challenged book in the United States, according to our data, uh, since uh, uh, 2018. Uh, we do, do our data on an annual basis. You pointed out that I'm quoting you. A large number of challenges are coming into books that deal with black American history, with the history of racism or addressing racism in society, often under the claim that they represent critical race theory. Uh, is this all, I guess, from political conservatives? Well, certainly uh, there have been um, parents' rights groups, at least that's how they call themselves, that have organized around uh, a number of topics. One of the topics is eradicating what they believe to be critical race theory from K through 12, kindergarten through 12th grade schools um, in this country. They show up at board meetings. They have book lists in hand. Um, they've challenged books ranging from picture book biographies of Ruby Bridges and Rosa Parks, both you know civil rights heroes from the past, uh, to more complex books uh, like Dr. Kendi's Stamped um, or uh, other books addressing the history of racism, the 1619 Project, for example. And, um, and what and reason so do they give? Uh, it is American history, isn't it? Well, they don't, apparently they don't agree with the perspective offered. They believe the uh, reasons I've read uh, without and I'm just transmitting a message here, but I've seen the reasons cited that they're Marxist, they're anti-American, um, that they, I mean, I've actually seen this in challenges for books intended for younger people or provided to students as part of their curriculum, that it makes white kids feel bad um, and that they shouldn't have to feel bad about their race. Um, this kind of reached the, the epitome of this kind of complaint um, what could be seen in Texas. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the author, Jerry Kraft, but he writes books uh, really aimed at upper elementary, early middle school students. Um, and his character is a, a African-American kid who is attending for the first time uh, a white, a primarily white 
private school and how he navigates that and how he makes friends. And it's told with humor. Um, there is no, I mean, it's about kids learning of being kids and making friendships and navigating the complex relationships of being in middle school and, and growing up. Um, and a school district in Texas, Katy, Texas, had arranged for Jerry to appear via Zoom to talk to the students. There is great excitement. His books, New Kid, his book New Kid, is very popular with readers of all ages and 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 things. And a parent called the school board to say New Kid was critical race theory and needed to be removed from the curriculum. And the author visit halted. And in fact, the school board, without doing more, did exactly that. They um, canceled Mr. Kraft's appearance and they pulled New Kid from the school libraries, even though no sexual content, no profanity, nothing that you might consider edgy or controversial content, other than the fact that it talked about uh, the experiences of a black person navigating new, you know, a new world, uh, primarily white private school. Another um, book of that sort, Stamped, Racism, <laughs> Anti-Racism, and You by Ibram X. Kendi, is, right. has, has also been challenged. Absolutely. And actually, there's a young adult edition of that book that Dr. Kendi wrote with the um, young adult author, Jason Reynolds, that's enormously popular. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing challenged is that particular edition of the book. Although we've seen Dr. Kendi's um, um, original work on book lists as well. Um, we're seeing these challenges brought by book uh, groups like Moms for Liberty. Um, for example, in Tennessee, the Moms for Liberty book uh, group put together an entire, you know, they picked apart an elementary school's um, library collection. This is where uh, they challenged the picture book biography of Rosa Parks, for example, um, as critical race theory. And they actually filed a complaint with the Tennessee Department of Education. You may know that Tennessee is one of the 20 states that has a law that bans the teaching of what they call divisive concepts or critical race theory in that state. And they attempted to get their local school board charged with violating that law by having books like that on the shelf. Um, my understanding is that the Department of Education has turned away that complaint but it's still uh, really a, a terrible experience for the school librarian, the teacher who is trying to create uh, a curriculum that includes all the students in the school, that recognizes the facts of history, um, that recognizes civil rights heroes for all that, you know, and, and but to have a very vocal active group uh, claiming that you've violated the law. Uh, putting your livelihood at risk, putting your community reputation at risk, showing up at board meetings to com uh, complain very vocally and loudly uh, about your work uh, and simply trying to provide good, accurate information about history and, and the persons who inhabit history from multiple perspectives, you know. Uh, it, it's just uh, been really incredible to watch some of these activities take place and it's, you know, and, and that's fed into what we've been observing for the last several months. 
My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Deborah Caldwell-Stone, the director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom. Um, it's interesting that some of the books, uh, for example, like To Kill a Mockingbird, have been uh, on these lists throughout the past. Uh, mm-hmm. What's wrong with To Kill a Mockingbird? Uh, I mean, I, I, is, is, it's a classic, isn't it? It is a classic, but classics still are challenged um, uh, today. Uh, the reasons may change. In the past, To Kill a Mockingbird was challenged because at the time it was perceived as promoting integration or uh, civil rights um, for African-Americans. Um, also, it was challenged because, uh, you know, the, the sexual assault claims that are part of the plot of the book um, and, and the interracial aspect of that sexual assault. Um, but more recently, that's faded as an issue. What is more of an issue con- uh, uh, these days is the book's use of racial epithets um, and even complaints that the... Uh, Atticus Finch is more of a white savior character than uh, a, a hero, a literary hero. And so, you know, it, it really is a demonstration that book challenges come from all, uh, all parts of the political spectrum and for a variety of reasons um, that, you know, the, the impulse to try to shield young people from ideas or concepts or literature that uh, an individual parent or a group feels is somehow harmful or unsuitable for young people to grapple with. And we find that that's, uh, you know, horribly, horribly underestimates the capacity of young people to read literature and understand the messaging, where it comes from, its framing, and, and to synthesize that into, you know, their learning um, and things. But yeah. Nonetheless, uh, that's where we are with To Kill a Mockingbird these days. And also with the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which Mm -hmm. was banned by librarians in Massachusetts after it was published in 1885. But in recent times, um, the objections have to do with the fact that Twain frequently uses the N-word. So it's been described as racially insensitive and as perpetuating racism. I I mean, I don't see Huckleberry Finn as perpetuating uh, racism. Uh, but wouldn't teaching that in a class actually allow a teacher to open up a discussion about how those words are offensive? Absolutely. And, you know, for the record, we strongly advocate that, you know, books like To Kill a Mockingbird and um, Huckleberry Finn remain in the curriculum, that banning them or removing them isn't the solution, That, but good teaching is, uh, that, you know, Um, The books need to be placed in context. You know, Huckleberry Finn was written uh, in a time and an era where different language, different concepts, different approaches to uh, race relations existed. Uh, And and students need to understand that. That won't be commonly available to them. And good teaching makes that clear and pulls out the lessons from the book. We we do know, for example, that Samuel Clemens was an Mm anti-racist, but his approaches for the time may seem antiquated or anachronistic for the today's era, 
Um, but it doesn't mean that there aren't lessons to be learned from that kind of literature. Um, you know, I think that the feeling is, and, and to be fair that there has been documentation around this, that younger students sometimes take it as license to begin using those racial epithets in the classroom and in the hallways of the school, mm. leading to some behavior issues. So maybe adjustment of when that book is taught, at what age, um, might be needed, but it doesn't mean that as a work that it shouldn't be available in the classroom for study and, and analysis in a literature class. Now, how much of the current sit political situation in the United States is responsible for what's being challenged and banned? The Republican governors of Texas and South Carolina have called for action on what they call obscene content in school libraries. Public schools in Virginia Beach pulled books, including Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, out of their libraries, um, pending the results of a challenge by conservative school board members. Schools in North Kansas City, Missouri, have done the same with um, Allison Bechtel's uh, Full Fun Home and All Boys Aren't Blue, a book of essays about growing up gay and black by George M. Johnson. Uh, in Flagler County, Florida, a member of the school board filed a criminal report over the presence of All Boys Aren't Blue in her district school library, claiming that it violated state obscenity laws. It's, uh, and and there in another case um, in Virginia, spotted. Forgive me for giving this list, but there are just so many. In uh, Virginia, spotted. Spotsylvania County School Board voted unanimously to have books with sexually explicit material removed from school library shelves. But two members of the school board said they wanted to see the books incinerated. Wasn't book burning a typical form of book censorship in the United States during the 1600s? Well, actually, it was more redolent of uh, Nazi regime in 1933 and later. But, you know, um, yeah, it's, you know, it certainly is uh, a a response that's disheartening in this day and age. And it is reflective of the divisive conversations we're having these days around topics like civil liberties and um, uh, the rights of marginalized folks like uh, LGBTQ folks who have finally gotten a place in society and have won some important civil liberties or even our growing awareness, or, you know, I shouldn't say our growing awareness, but, you know, the surfacing and awareness of our racist past and grappling with it in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. Uh, so absolutely, uh, the challenges and book bans we're seeing today is reflective of that. But we're also seeing what to me is most disturbing is a ramping up of uh, tactics used to try to censor books um, from the, the call to burn books in Spotsylvania. And I will say, and I'll do credit that at its next board meeting, uh, the five other five members of the board rapidly voted to shut down um, the audit of its collection and voted to leave the school library alone. Um, but um, the, this idea that anything doing with the topic of sex or gender identity or sexual identity is somehow inherently unsuitable for any minor to view. And that it doesn't matter whether the minor is 17 or 18 or, or five years old. Um, the conversation always takes place uh, as if um, 
anyone who has access to these books is five years old, but we're actually talking about books like, for example, Fun Home, Alison Bechdel's lovely memoir of growing up. I, it's one of, you know, I cherish it. I read it when it first came out. It's one of my favorite books, one of my favorite graphic novels. Um, and it's no way obscene. It's no way illegal content. No court of law would ever judge it to be obscene, either for adults or minors. But it's very easy to raise controversy by making that claim. Um, it's very easy to create political theater around going to a sheriff's office and filing charges against a book or a library staff or uh, a school board for offering these materials. But it's not available to five years old. These are books dealing with the process of coming of age, of growing up gay, growing up transgender, um, what that meant to the individual. These are books that adolescents want and need. They want to know about these things, whether it's their own, their friends going through these questions and struggles, or they're struggling with these questions themselves. Um, uh, books dealing with sexual health, sexual identity uh, from a nonfiction standpoint. These are topics that young people don't go to their parents with as a usual as a usual matter, but they need access to this information, whether it's in a school library or a public library, so that they can, you know, for both for health and safety reasons, but to also uh, make themselves complete as human beings, whether it's to understand themselves or to gain empathy for others who are going through the experience. Uh, and yet there's this real effort by a number of organizations to try to frame these materials as obscene, uh, I think as an effort to take, take the, uh, to erase the uh, uh, LGBTQ person from society, uh, at least for young people. They better to try not to watch Jeopardy. But uh, I, it, this is not just for minors. For example, on March 3rd, 1873, Congress passed the Comstock Law, which um, referred was referred to as an act for the suppression of trade in and circulation of obscene literature and articles of immoral use. It criminalized sending erotica, contraceptives, abortifacients, sex toys, personal letters alluding to any sexual content or information through the U.S. Postal Service, and not only restrained the distribution of pornography, but also the spread of medical journals that held information regarding contraception and abortion. And it made uh, it a misdemeanor punishable by fine and imprisonment to sell, give away, or have in possession any obscene publication. So it's not just protecting young people. Well, I'll say that that's what I was talking about earlier when I say we've kind of reached uh, a consensus in the United States. I mean, in fairness, the Supreme Court has struck down that Comstock law. Um, we really haven't had... That was the old Supreme Court. It might change. It might change, these new, but these there's new, nothing um... teed up. I, I remain hopeful that, um, you know, uh, and I'll, you know, I remain hopeful that uh, in some places the rule of law will still prevail. And I can tell you a quick story about this. Um, this tactic of charging library staff with uh, uh, violations of obscenity laws um, probably um, is best exemplified by the attempt in uh, Campbell County, Wyoming, um, a 
local branch of the anti-LGBTQIA group, Mass Resistance, uh, did file charges with the local sheriff claiming that many uh, books in the young adult collection that dealt with gender identity, sexual identity, um, were obscene or were enticing young people into illegal sexual activity. Um, and they actually appointed a special prosecutor to investigate the library staff and the books to determine if a crime had been committed. And, you know, in Wyoming, you know, where, you know, you know, it is a deep red state, but even there, the special prosecutor issued uh, a letter uh, informing everyone that the books that they had attempted to get charged were in no way obscene, uh, either for minors or adults, and that the library staff had committed no crime in making them available to the community, and especially to the community of young people. So I have some small faith that I think that some of the consensus about what is uh, legal and illegal materials under the law uh, will hold, uh, even in our current environment. But nonetheless, this framing, this conversation, that this controversy that's being raised about these materials can't help but have a chilling effect, um, both on the activities of school boards, but on individual educators and librarians themselves, especially if you live in a rural community. Um, and, and, you know, it's very easy to be fearful of your place in the community. And when somebody starts talking about the fact that you're corrupting children, um, showing up at board meetings, making threats on social media, going to the police, it can't help but encourage you to avoid the controversy by not making those materials available or taking them off the shelf. And, and it's really um, tragic on so many levels. Well, you, you um, we, point out that locale is an issue. Getting back to the Comstock law, it led yeah. the Boston district attorney to threaten criminal prosecution uh, for the use of explicit language in some poetry, especially Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass in 1881. But then it was published in Philadelphia and, and sold out all of its, uh, its uh, early editions. Yeah, and Upton Sinclair had the same experience. His book was banned in Boston, but then in New York, it was a bestseller. I think that's one thing that censors don't really take away as a lesson is in that in attempting to censor a book, you make it incredibly popular. We hear all the time from authors whose books have been challenged or removed from school libraries that their sales immediately shot up. It becomes something that is shared and handed off from student to student, from reader to reader. Um, and in many ways, the book gets far more circulation than it might have gotten sitting on a shelf uncirculated. We find that when we are taking in these reports, we often learn that books that have been like all boys are not blue um, were acquired by the library, may not have even circulated, but then the circulation shot up and sales jumped because um, it was raised as a bad book in a school board meeting or a library so board meeting. this is good advertising. <laughs> absolutely. It's absolutely good advertising. But, you know, we, we do have, you know, the Supreme Court has acted. Um, uh, the decisions around um, uh, Ulysses in 1934, uh, so a few other decisions, uh, particularly the Roth decision in 57, really put paid to the federal government's role in censorship, at least doesn't mean that we aren't seeing, you know, local government entities or state 
governments engage in censorship, but the federal government has kind of taken itself out of the business of censorship. And, and the precedents set by the Supreme Court in those decisions um, and the standards it's set for what is actually obscene um, have pretty well governed the decision-making in the courts. But that doesn't change the discourse in communities. It doesn't often govern the decision-making of school boards and library boards that may be shy of controversy. And we're actually seeing the election of board members to school boards and library boards who are actually committed to censorship uh, of cleansing libraries or cleansing school libraries of materials that are deemed to be inappropriate for minors. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Back with Deborah Caldwell Stone, who's the director of the American Library Association's Office of Intellectual Freedom, and we're talking about books that are either banned or threatened uh, to be banned. In some cases, it's the the publisher who makes the decision. What reasons were given for Scholastic's recent decision to pull Dab Pilkey's *The Adventures of Ook and Gluck*, *Kung Fu Cavemen from the, the Future*, and and also? Seuss Enterprise's decision to pull six of their books. I mean, Seuss books are written specifically for kids. Well, in both those cases, um, well, let's take Dave Pilkey's book. Um, that was a request of Mr. Pilkey himself. Um, he took a look at that book and made a decision for himself that he felt that he had not done his best work with it that it was uh, insensitive um, in regards to both, I believe, race and the depiction of persons who may not, you know, culturally insensitive. And he decided he didn't want it circulating anymore. And so he asked his publisher to take the book out of circulation and the publisher agreed. Um, and You don't. You said you don't agree. Oh, excuse me? Haven't you said you don't agree? Well, I, I, you know, we, we really haven't made comment on Mr. Pilkey's decision or his request uh, to remove, you know, take the book out of circulation. And what he did, what happened in that case was that the book was taken out of print. They're not going to make it available for sale anymore. Um, but it wasn't a mandate to remove the book from libraries. And we, so, you know, when this has happened, when publishers have made the decision to stop publishing a book, we're very clear to library uh, librarians and educators who contact our office about this. That's the decision of the publisher or the author. And, you know, frankly, they have a right to make that decision about their own creative content or the work they're publishing. And uh, the right not to publish is part of the First Amendment as well. But it's not a mandate to remove those books from circulation. And we say, if you're, you know, you shouldn't take the books off just because an author has made a decision that they've change the name. They don't like the book anymore and they're not going to publish it anymore. It should remain on the shelf unless there is another reason for taking it off. Um, in library practice, there is this practice called 
uh, it may be an unfortunate name, weeding, but you know, all libraries have physical limitations. You know, there's only so many inches of shelf space. Um, there's books being published all the time. Uh, ideas change, information changes, new information surfaces. So book libraries are already always in the process of curating their collections. And so they'll remove books that don't circulate, that aren't serving the information needs of the community. Um, they'll remove books who are outdated. You know, books about moon travel in the 1950s are certainly shouldn't be taking up space in public libraries or even school libraries these days. And, and so what will happen often with these books, they'll remain on the shelf. Um, but when they're no longer in when they're no longer circulating or they become physically impossible to circulate, they'll be removed at that time. I know that that was the decision made by the New York Public Library in regard to the Seuss books. Uh, yeah, as, as you know, in that case, Seuss Enterprises made the determination that many of the illustrations in the, the books they chose to stop publishing were racially insensitive. And that rather than trying to amend the books or rewrite them, they chose to take them out of print. Again, it wasn't a command for folks to destroy the books or take them off the shelf. Um, but libraries like the New York Public Library said, you know, we're not going to do anything, but we're not going to be replacing them because of course they won't be able to replace them. They won't be for sale. So they'll remain on the shelf until they're eligible and meet the criteria for weeding, whether it's non-circulation or physical condition or otherwise. You've provided a list of professional resources for library staffs if they choose to examine or re-examine their collections. Uh, a webpage called the Selection and Reconsideration Policy Tool Court and the uh, American Library Association's Code of Ethics offers guidance on ethical dilemmas, specifically when addressing the question of collection maintenance. What do you tell the libraries? Well, in my own work with librarians, uh, library workers, you know, I say the ultimate question is, did you acquire the work according to criteria in your collection development policy or your material selection policy? Does it serve the information needs of someone in the community? And if the answers to those questions are yes, that book should be on the shelf. Um, each library has a different mission, a different purpose. School libraries are certainly distinct from public libraries, which have a much broader um, mission and purpose in providing for information needs in the community. Um, and But you know, they all should have these written policies that identify the criteria and the standards used to acquire materials. Um, and then, you know, exercise their best professional judgment in light of the code of ethics, which asks each library worker, each librarian to set aside their personal beliefs and exercise their selection skills uh, with the best interests of their community members in mind. And when we talk about the community, we mean the entire community, not just those who have the loudest voices, um, who might create the most controversy, but particularly keeping in mind those who have been traditionally marginalized in the community. Uh, there's been a real effort in recent years by libraries and library workers to make sure that collections reflect the lives of everyone in the community so that they're including more works that reflect the lives of LGBTQIA persons, books like George that have stories about transgender persons, 
or collecting more broadly and uh, with varying perspectives on race relations and race and racism in the United States that reflect the lived experiences of black persons uh, that recount the experience of black persons suffering under police violence. Um, and, and, you know, this effort to diversify the collections is ongoing. It's not perfect, but it's a, a real, um, um, it's part of the work that library professionals are undertaking these days to make sure that we're having a welcoming and inclusive collection that either reflects the experiences of the individual or provides a means for others to empathize and understand the experiences well, of other of other individuals. And one frequently targeted book is Maya Kobabe's 2019 graphic memoir, Gender Queer. And she asks, why are they mad about the book? Because I said non-binary and trans people exist? Where does the, the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution come into this, this discussion? Well, if it's a public school library or if it's a public library, it's like one of the first questions we should be asking because as government institutions, they have obligations under the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. We actually have case law in the United States that says that removing books from libraries, whether it's a school library or a public library, um, for reasons that have to do with its content or its viewpoint is actually uh, a violation of the First Amendment rights of the library user, um, that um, government action to censor those materials is prohibited under the First Amendment. Um, with Maria's Kababi's book, um, you know, the focus has actually been on about four panels of the, uh, it's a graphic novel, and there are four panels that deal honestly with one of, some of her sexual experiences growing up. Um, and uh, involves some nudity and uh, the individuals trying to remove and the group it's actually individuals and groups it's one of the books that we're seeing um, uh, whose challenges are being amplified by social media in particular um, are using that as a reason to vilify the entire work um, but it's it, you know the fact is is that what the law requires is that you look at the work as a whole and frankly, if you look at the work as a whole, it's this memoir of coming of age, growing up, um, exploring her struggles with gender identity. And she actually goes through a number of phases to reach her uh, decision about her gender identity. She, I believe, believes she's asexual in adulthood. Um, but, uh, and it's been, you know, it's been widely available in mostly high school libraries. It's never really been available to elementary students, or if it is, it's been erroneously placed in elementary school. It has been designated as a young adult book or a book of interest for young adults. Um, but, you know, to remove the book, to target the book because of its content or its viewpoint on gender identity, um, absolutely raises First Amendment questions, particularly the First Amendment rights of the persons who want to read the book and are entitled to find it on the library shelf. Um, it, you know, it, it raises the wider question of, you know, the use of censorship as a tool. You know, um, I find many of the groups who are seeking to remove these books have um, raised other concerns about their own First Amendment rights, uh, whether it's being censored on social media, 
um, or, you know, their right to speak up at school board meetings, but they have no regard for the First Amendment right to read in libraries, particularly young people's First Amendment right to read in libraries. And they use censorship as this blunt instrument. Uh, and, you know, I fear for young people who are being taught lessons in censorship these days. You know, it's not our best demonstration of our democratic values, or actually it demonstrates a lack of adherence and loyalty to our democratic values. Uh, and I, you know, I think we lose something when we resort to censorship like this uh, beyond the actual violations of uh, civil liberties that are involved with censorship. My guest today on Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org is Deborah Colville Stone, the director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom. Uh, go, following up on what you just said, uh, I'm going to quote you. You said, what we're seeing is really this idea that marginalized communities, marginalized groups don't have a place in public school libraries or public libraries, and that libraries should be institutions that only serve the needs of a certain group of people in the community. Absolutely. Well, when you agree we, with yourself, obviously. You yeah, said that. Yeah, I agree with myself, but, you know, the reason, you know, what, we're, what goes behind that is the observation, the demands of some groups uh, challenging books in public libraries and school libraries that they don't want to be have to have uncomfortable conversations with their kids. So they don't want pride displays available to young people. Um, often libraries will put books dealing with LGBTQ themes or characters on display during Pride Month in June. Or they don't want to have uncomfortable conversations about race. And so they believe that the library should be, quote, a safe place, unquote, for their children, uh, that they shouldn't need to have to go to the library with their child. They should be able to expect the library to do their parenting for them. Um, and what lies behind this is the idea that their values around um, being gay or queer or their values around uh, their views of American history and racism um, should be institutionalized and reflected in uh, the library's collections and their displays and their programming. Uh, and that's really an assertion that the library only belongs to one group of people rather than being this inclusive community institution that belongs to everyone, that needs to serve everyone. And it can get kind of personal because Jonathan Friedman, for example, the director of free expression and education at PEN America, says he was accused of being a pedophile for defending the presence of a book called Out of Darkness in school libraries. Uh, that kind of, the, the, the flinging of epithets and the social media attacks are not uncommon. You know, um, we're he had, he's not alone in that. Uh, I know of a number of controversies at school boards where um, uh, there was an effort to complain about gender queer again. Um, and every individual, whether a student or parent who rose up to defend uh, the right of students to have access to that book in the library, um, the group attacking the book would stand up and yell pedophile during their public comment uh, at the podium. Um, again, it's, uh, uh, I, you know, it's theater. It's a rhetorical tactic, but unfortunately it seems to be very effective in some quarters uh, to vilify uh, these materials, to set them outside the pale uh, of normal discourse 
and, and make them so controversial and toxic that no school or library will include them in the collection. Um, again, uh, kind of sanitizing the library for a particular group and their values. One of the books that surprised me was criticism of Dr. Seuss's The Lorax. <laughs> oh, that, that, that's uh, a challenge, I recall. I believe that even took, that took place back in the 90s. Yeah. Um, uh, there was a, a school district in Oregon where the um, main uh, employee, employment was through logging, and the book was seen as attacking the logging industry. Um, uh, and so there were a number of uh, parents, I think even the union, uh, sought to get the book removed from that uh, Oregon school district so that uh, they could feel that their livelihood wasn't being attacked or undermined in any way. But we have con more contemporary um, uh, examples of that. Um, in the wake of George Floyd's killing and all the reconsideration of the targeting of black people for police violence um, and the police shootings, um, there was, uh, there's a book out there, uh, Something Happened in My Town. It's written by three educators um, who wanted to provide a vehicle for both educators and parents to talk to young people of both races about police shootings of black people. Um, and uh, it was being used in uh, a number of Minneapolis schools and the police union and a number of parents in Minneapolis who were either, who's, uh, either worked for the police department who were married to police officers sought to remove that book from uh, the school district because they felt that it was you know it, uh, it was derogatory toward police and questioned police authority and they didn't want that book in in the library even though um, Minneapolis has been the, the home of one of the most uh, what notorious mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah well uh, you know notorious the, cases in, in, in recent history in that case you know and but yet, you know, yeah, the, the, the book was seen as a, a threat um, or inappropriate for young people. Um, and, you know, and we saw a, it, it actually ended up on our most challenged book list for 2020 because of the number of challenges that were brought against it. Um, because uh, and again, because of the viewpoints expressed in it, they in fact, the educators used different families to express different viewpoints. Um, and one of the families is very honest about their view of police violence as a form of racism, institutionalized racism in a society. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, their, uh, the police union, um, and, and I said, uh, those whose families were included police officers objected to that book. Now, there's actually uh, groups that have been created, founded to fight things like critical race theory, like No Left Turn in Education, it's, who have compiled a list of books that they're, they say are indoctrinating uh, kids to a dangerous ideology. Um, are, yeah. there, are there any, we don't have much time left, but uh, are there some books on the list that have popped up that surprise you a lot? You know, um, I've ceased to be surprised at challenges you see challenges for all reasons. Um, but, you know, sometimes books like George 
which, as I said, you know, other than the fact that there's a transgender character in it, is wholly age appropriate. I don't understand. Well, what about William Styron's *The Confessions of Nat Turner* or Jeffrey Eugenides' *Middlesex*? These are um, almost they're, American classics. But, yeah, they're classics. But you know, being a classic, being sometimes actually makes it more of a target. We, you know, um, uh, you know, they come to the attention of these groups because they're included in AP English curricula. Um, they're on summer reading lists. Um, and become more visible that way. In fact, that's one of the biggest thrusts right now of these movements, these anti-critical race theory uh, uh, groups, is what they call transparency. They want book lists so they can vet the book lists and then raise complaints about the books or resources that are being offered to students. Um, and in some ways, you could argue that transparency is a good thing, but when it creates a target for activist organizations who may not even be parents in the school district to target the school district or target the library and, and create a controversy to try to get the books removed, um, you know, I think it's uh, a form of political activism aimed at indoctrination and erasure of particular ideas that we ought not tolerate in uh, uh, a diverse and pluralistic society that claims to uh, protect the freedom to read. And we have to, to leave it there, unfortunately. We've run out of time. Yeah. But my great thanks to you, Deborah Caldwell-Stone, the director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom. It's been... Uh, a, an eye-opening conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thank you again, Leonard. I'm glad to have been here. Uh, anytime that you want to invite me, I'll be happy to come back. Okay. Uh, and that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to hear more of them, you can access an archive of our over 500 past shows at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a few minutes to ask for your support for WBAI. We need all of our listeners who have the finances to do so, to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or, or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now to keep the kind of unique in-depth content we bring you on this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Without your help, there's absolutely no way that this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, can stay on the air. So why not make that call right now in the name of Leonard Lopez at large so we can continue to bring you the kind of programming you won't hear anywhere else? Again, that number, 212-209-2950, or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And my great thanks to all of you who have already stepped up to support WBAI in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. We are off for the next few days, but I hope you can join us again for Tuesday's show when Dr. David Wilcox will discuss his book, How to Avoid Being a Victim of the American Healthcare System, a Patient's Handbook for Survival. You won't want to miss it. Have a great weekend. <laughs>